Hello once again, you're listening to the Aaron Meta Show on Player FM, Stitcher app on the iTunes, and also on Mixcloud.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Aaron Meta Show. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Aaron Meta Show. And also where you can follow me, as I mentioned once again, on Mixcloud, which is mixcloud.com forward slash Aaron Meta. This uh, time around, I'm not going to be the host of the show. Uh, is actually I'm going to be handing it over to my good friends over at the Manchester Debating Union. Uh, police forces across the UK have been subject to a growing list of scandals over the past decade. Critics of the police uh, point to events such as the Hillsborough disaster and also the killing of Mark Duggan, as many of the others uh, examples of uh, ra- racism and incompetence. Uh, some of my American listeners should be will be also be familiar with the case of Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, and also uh, Eric Gardner as well. Uh, however, the supporters of, the, of forces argue that the police is improving and states it's uh, the officers who work hard for, to protect the citizens of the UK, UK every day. Some argue that the problems within the police simply reflect division and prejudice within society and are not particularly particular to the force itself. And so the Manchester Debating Union is asking, uh, should we have faith in the police? And we're going to bring you this debate right now, and this is very exciting. So, first of all, I want to thank the Manchester Debating Union for putting on this debate, and thank you uh, for letting me record it and also put it up as one of my podcasts as well. A huge shout-out to uh, the um, MDU executive uh, for allowing me to do so. So, well, we're getting this right started. So, uh, just to let you know that uh, the proposition speakers are Dr. Michael M. Shiner, who is the Senior Research Fellow at the uh, Malheim Centre for Criminology at LSE. And also uh, speaking with him is uh, Sujesh Grover, who is the Director of the Independent Police Watchdog, The Monitoring Group. In opposition for this debate is Tony Lloyd, who is the former MP of Central Manchester and also is the Police and Crime Commissioner for the Greater Manchester Police. And Irene Curtis, who is the president of the Police Superintendents Association for England and Wales. If you want to find out more about the Manchester Debating Union, visit their website at mdu.manchester.ac.uk. You can also find them on Facebook as well, just search for Manchester Debating Union. And also you can find them on Twitter as well at NDUDebate. Thank you very much once again for checking out the Aaron Meta Show. I will leave you with this debate. And uh, just to let you know that there's going to be plenty of other shows going to be coming up uh, up towards uh, through Christmas and the end of the year as well. Thank you very much for tuning in. And I leave you with the Manchester Debating Union. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to show the whole world. Why, I was the unscripted, uncensored, loose cannon of commentary. I'm back, baby. Broadcasting from Manchester in the United Kingdom, this is the Aaron Meta Show. Lovely. So it's all playful here, so without any further ado, I'd like to invite Michael to stop the play at the party. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Some preliminaries first. So for the purpose of the debate, we take the police to mean the public police that are organised into 43 territorial forces in England and Wales, plus the British Transport Police. For the purpose of debate, we take faith to mean public trust and confidence. In particular, we take it to mean, can the public have trust and confidence that police officers will act ethically, legally, and in ways that promote trust and confidence? Not only that, Can they have faith that when the police fail to meet those standards, they will come clean and work to make amends? So crucially for us, faith relates to the actions of the police and the reactions of the police to instances of misconduct, which there would inevitably be. We will show, in the the course of the debate, that we are currently in a crisis of trust and confidence. Trust and confidence in the police is at an all-time low, but it's simply a statement of fact. We will show that this crisis of confidence is in fact acknowledged by the system. We will show that there are clear and understandable for a massive erosion of our faith in the police and that this is linked to police conduct. We will show that these reasons are rooted in the nature of policing itself and are unavoidable. So it's simply a statement of fact to say that many people currently do not have trust and confidence in, in, in the police. Uh, All of the evidence indicates that levels of trust and confidence in the police have been falling dramatically, particularly since the 1980s, but going back to the 1960s. To give you one example, 
In response to the Crime Survey for England and Wales in 2011, 46% of respondents, almost half, did not think that the police can be relied upon when needed. Crucially, research shows that trust and confidence in the police is lowest amongst those people who have contact with the police. So contact with the police reduces your trust and confidence in them. The reasons for this hemorrhaging of trust and confidence are very well established. They're to do with concerns about police corruption and to do with the abuse of police power. The 1980s was a crisis decade which was scarred by repeated riots and by miscarriages of justice. The Brixton riots in 1981 were caused by the misuse of police power to stop and search. Subsequent riots in Brixton in 1985 and in Tottenham in 1985 were sparked by police raids on people's homes which resulted in the shooting and paralysis of the mother of one suspect and the collapse and death of the mother of another suspect. In the latter case, it sparked the Tottenham riots and Broadwater Farm Estate, during which PC Keith Blakelock was stabbed multiple times and killed. Three people were convicted of that murder, but were subsequently released because of concerns about the evidence against them. And this is the first example of a miscarriage of justice which scarred the decade. What we went on to see later on in the decade was a series of exoneration cases involving uh, people who had been convicted for crimes related to the IRA. So we saw the release of the Guildford Four, we saw the release of the Maguire Seven, and we saw the release of the Birmingham Six. In all of these cases, the appeal court found that the evidence against them was unsafe, the convictions were unsafe. What we saw was a pattern of fabricated evidence as the police sought to gain a conviction. Now you may think, what's this man talking about in the 1980s? He might have been alive then, but I certainly wasn't. These are historic cases, they now have no relevance today, everything's changed. Certainly some things have changed. You would be right to think that a whole series of regulations have been put in place to guard against the misuse of police power, and they have improved things in certain areas of police conduct. But what those things demonstrate is that we should not start from a position of faith. We need robust regulations. All of the improvements that we have seen are due to the presence of regulations, not simply faith. You'd also be mistaken for thinking that the concerns about the abuse of police power, of excessive force, and of corruption have gone away. You only need to think of the shootings of Mark Duggan, of John Charles Menezes. You only need to think of the kettling of student protests, of the misuse of stop and search powers, of the disproportionate focus on black and minority ethnic communities to know that we still have concerns about the misuse of police power. You need only think about the hacking scandal, you need only think about the Plebgate affair to know that we have continued concerns about the fabrication of evidence, about dishonesty and corruption within the police service. So these issues have not gone away, they have not been solved, they continue to be with us. Indeed, I would say, that we must not make the mistake of thinking that these are aberrant examples, that these are down to individual errors, these are systemic, these are to do with the nature of the police organisation and human frailties. So we're not suggesting for a moment that the police are running around intent on misusing their powers. What we're saying is the police are human and are subject to human frailties. So they are in, and these, these abuses that we're talking about are the result of an organisational context and culture which facilitates the abuse of power and discourages admissions of wrongdoing when that power is misused. One of the fundamental findings of social psychology relates to the importance that the environment has in shaping people's conduct. The Zimbardo prison experiment, which was conducted in the depths of a psychology department with people like us, with ordinary members of the, of the public, volunteers, who were given the roles of prisoners and prison officers. What, the experiment was supposed to last for two weeks. It was aborted after one week because the volunteer prison officers were demonstrating such cruelty and, and aspects of psychopathy that the experiment had to be stopped. <coughs> Zimbardo's conclusion was this wasn't because these individuals were somehow disordered, battery of tests, and they weren't. What he concluded was it was to do with the nature of the environment. Zimbardo concluded that there is no such thing as rotten apples, there is only rotten barrels. It is to do with the nature of the organisation. This is relevant to the police organisation because the police organisation is an, an organisation which is invested with considerable power. 
These human frailties are also exacerbated by other aspects of the police function and police role. The police are often put in high-stress situations where they experience cognitive overload. The police culture is characterised by a degree of solidarity because the police need to look out for one another. That makes it very difficult for them to report on one another in instances of misconduct. The police in our minds and their own minds represent virtue. When you represent virtue, that makes it very difficult to acknowledge your own capacity for wrongdoing. I work with police a lot of the time, particularly around stop and search. I know, I know many stop and search leads up and down the country, but we're seeking to make sure that stop and search powers are used robustly and fairly. Their experience is that they often run into difficulties of the organisation because, as one of them said, working with the police on the issue of stop and search is like working with an alcoholic who doesn't want to admit he's got a drink problem. Because of all of these issues, we urge you to accept the proposition. Thank you very much, Sir Michael. I'd like to invite Tony Lloyd to continue the case inside the opposition. Thanks very much. Um, you know, Michael, there's an awful lot of your analysis that, that I agree with, and of course there is. Um, one of the roles I've got is, is around the government policing, and actually uh, not having proper government around policing can be enormously expensive for society. There's a very old uh, Latin uh, or Roman expression, who guards the guards, and it, it does matter who guards the guards. But what I would like to begin by saying is this, can, can fast British policing, with policing in many other parts of the world, the, the, the riots that took place in uh, the United States over the last couple of days, um, could they happen here? Well, um, in the past we have had similar riots. I think it's less likely with the British policing model than with the American policing model. Um, the, uh, the, the, the reality of, of issues like uh, crowd control, you know, when I was at your age, um, go to a football match in this country was a, 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 has a health hazard when both policing and rival fans would not be out of each other. I can't believe I'm already on six minutes. So. My first minute. Not this first minute. <laughs> the, um, that's, uh, that's what he's just testing about. The, the, um, the, because in, in those days, the, uh, the, the, the way that policing of, the, of the large crowd events took place was a pretty dreadful affair. Actually, we have now, certainly in this city, a very good reputation for the way those, those large events are stewarded. There were major fracking protests in, in this, uh, this conversation recently. Went on for many months. Perhaps the number of, of, uh, of complaints that came through there was very, very small, given how explosive and how tense and how uh, politically uh, loaded that situation is, where the police are asked um, to keep, keep public peace in the middle of a very high-tension situation. So there are, there are a massive... Um, differences in the, in the policing culture in this country. But of course governance is important, of course it's right and proper that we recognise that with human beings, the 6,500 police officers here in Greater Manchester, up and down the country, many thousands of others, there are people who actually shouldn't be in policing, that's always a reality. There are people who make human mistakes, that's also a reality. And there does need to be mechanisms of correction and oversight, whether that's to look at the complaints uh, that legitimately come from the public, uh, to deal with those complaints in, in an adequate way. Here, actually, in Greater Manchester, I'm trying to reform the complaints process because I haven't had confidence in that complaints process. And it's important that we do give you, the public, it's also important to give serving members of the police force a sense of confidence in a complaints process because otherwise the, the trust that the public needs to have in our policing isn't there. But, you know, in the end, um, of course, if we give extraordinary power to the police, and we do it for a reason, there was a situation not, not that long ago when a, a young man from the Manchester area was very brutally murdered in the streets of London, uh, Lee Rigby. Um, the two people who killed him actually would, did that in order to strike terror into our society, and to an extent they, they succeeded. Most people, quite rightly, in that situation backed away from the two people who murdered Lee Rigby. The people who didn't back away because they couldn't were the police who went and arrested those two perpetrators. When we had two police officers killed in Greater Manchester a couple of years back, uh, Fiona Bone and Nicola Hughes, they were killed by somebody who you could describe as a psychopath or whatever you like, but nevertheless, a very brutal murderer. He was on the run and nobody knew where. 
Police officers who were colleagues of those two murdered police officers went out in those same areas the following day, to not to look particularly for the person who'd committed the murder, but to maintain the, the public order that they did on a regular basis, because that's what we expect of our policing service, that they're there when we need them. We know, uh, for example, that um, tonight, uh, when the pubs close, there will be victims of domestic abuse. The people who will be called out to respond to that domestic abuse won't be me as a civilian, it will be a police officer. And they'll be there sometimes to uh, break up a fight. They'll be there sometimes actually to be on the end of the fight because they talk to most police officers and they know that's part of the occupational risk they take on our behalf in society. Now, do we have unlimited faith? Michael, you're right. We shouldn't have unlimited faith in our police service because I can go through, and I lived through as a member of parliament, many of the, the outrages that we know were there. And Stephen Lawrence, I know uh, there will probably be some uh, detailed uh, comments on it. Quite rightly, that was a national scandal, a national scandal, and something that is a, a stain on, on uh, not simply British policing, but on British society, which it took so long to bring um, any sense of justice. And justice isn't even there to this day, I know that. Uh, Hillsborough, um, across the Pennines from here, again, a scandal that a conspiracy could have taken place that blotted the name, uh, not simply of British policing, but of British society, because there's no justice for people who, uh, whose families, uh, lost a, for those who've lost a loved one in those events. So things do go wrong, and things have gone very, very badly wrong. But I think what I want to say to you is this. How do we get policing wrong? Well, I think in a number of ways we get policing wrong. And the area that Michael talks about quite a lot, and, and I live through, and I share that critique, I was very critical of the police here in Greater Manchester at the time. As a, as a member of Parliament, I represented the inner city of Manchester. Um, the Chief Constable at the time talked, for example, about uh, the, the gay people uh, swilling around in, in their own filth. Um, that was unacceptable comment from a Chief Constable at that time. It would be unacceptable today. Um, but policing actually has had to change because the complacency that allowed that type of social model <coughs> was massively dangerous and Parliament had to take some actions about that and did. Maybe not enough and maybe we've still got a journey to go on there. The other danger though is actually cynicism. Um, the cynicism that says that every time there is a mistake in police, and there will be mistakes when we give power to individuals, that the um, newspapers magnify that to such a level as to create um, a critique of every police officer. When the pledgate took place, and maybe you want all those, you may know that uh, Andrew Mitchell lost his life case today. Um, but when the floodgates took place, um, individual officers did behave deplorably. Not every police officer behaved deplorably, but the headlines gave that kind of impression. Um, so cynicism is as dangerous as complacency. And I'll give you a third danger. And it's a government at the moment that's cutting back on that police force and reducing its capacity to take the kind of proportionate risk that keeps you and me safe. So, Michael, where I'm with you is this. Take away the governments. Uh, take away those kind of controls around ethical standards, around uh, uh, proper uh, capacity to deal with th when things go wrong. And we, we, should, we would lose our faith in policing. The reality actually is this, is that with that kind of governance, we need to have that faith. Because when you are in that emergency situation, when you need the police to respond to a murder on the streets of one of our cities, Will turn up, and that's where we have to have faith in our police. Thank you very much, Tony, and I'd like to invite Suresh to continue the case of the side Thank you, Chair. Um, when Declan called me to speak at Manchester, I jumped at the uh, prospect of coming back to Lancashire. Um, it's here where my parents arrived in 1966 and my formative years, um, from the age of nine up to what was then A-levels, was spent in Nelson. And I have very happy memories of Nelson, but I have also very alarming experiences in Nelson. In fact, my parents were so traditional, um, they did everything in their power to integrate myself and my sister and our brothers into British society. Um, my father had undying faith in the establishment. 
so much so that he nearly forced me to join the police force and in fact went to their recruiting process when I just finished A-levels. Then in the early 70s, um, a tidal wave descended into my town, popularly known as Pakibashi. Me and my friends in Nelson, where I was a student at a secondary modern school, um, began to suffer racial abuse and I was stabbed. My nephew had his jaw broken. This was reported to the police. Nothing came out of it. No one has ever been arrested or charged. Since over the last 35 years, I've worked with um, many families. I think about 129 families who've suffered some form of death, suspicious death, unexplained deaths, racial murders or sexual murders. I've worked with over 3,000 victims of domestic violence and racial violence. And I was the coordinator for the Stephen Lawrence family campaign, killed in 1993. Family went through unprecedented um, steps to have their sons murdered, investigated thoroughly and properly. Right at the outside, the police said there was a wall of silence and they, they couldn't get witnesses. It took the presence of Nelson Mandela, a world-known statesman, to come to the Lawrence's house and announce that black lives are as cheap in this country as they are in South Africa for the police to act, arrest the suspects, and then de and release them as soon as Nelson Mandela flew. It took the family to launch the first ever public-private prosecution against the suspects, which we lost because of police allegations of contamination of evidence by the chief witness who was with Stephen at that time. Officer X. Cole said that his identification of the suspects was unreliable because it said something to them. It took an unprecedented, the first ever public inquiry, judge-led public inquiry, at the failings of the Lawrence case. That, last, that took place in 1998, lasted some over 60 days, heard from about 40 witnesses, including the police commissioner and the suspects. And a high court judge who led the inquiry, Sir William McPherson, came to the conclusion that the failure wasn't just simply to do with incompetence or lack of police leadership, but more importantly to do with institutional racism. The legacy of the Lawrence case rested on that allegation. At the inquiry, we heard from the police, we were terrible in 1993, but we improved in 1999. So you must have faith in us. You must trust us. Well, actually, the Lawrence case is still a scandal, because this year, in March, March 6th, the Home Secretary announced another public inquiry into the Lawrence case. That inquiry is to do with the allegations by a police undercover officer a whistleblower who now says that while the Lawrences were trying to persuade the police to arrest the suspects, they were being spied upon and their campaign was being smeared. And that undercover officer also says not only the Lawrences but many justice campaigns were also being spied upon. And also the fact that some of these undercover officers stationed in the special demonstration unit of the Metropolitan Police had relationships with targeted women and fathered their children. And these women are currently suing the police on this issue. And this public inquiry into the smear and corruption in the Lawrence case will come up in the next one or two years. The terms of reference are still being worked out. But let me just say this. There are a number of reasons why the police need to be looked differently from other civil servants. Firstly, they are the only people, only agency, that has the right to use force and detain people like, unlike anyone else. So their relationship and contact with individuals has to be judged on that exceptionalism. Secondly, they are the only force, when it comes to crime, who are able and allowed to collate and preserve evidence. If they don't, cases don't come forward. And let's look at the statistics. In my view, when it comes to the police coming in contact with individuals, whether it's the black and Asian community, whether it's social movements, animal rights activists, environmental groups, women activists, 
or working class people just watching football club like the Hillsborough, the police reaction seems to be the same. Absolutely no concern about the cost of life and who is responsible for it. Now, I don't say that if I get attacked, I'm not going to call the police. But I expect a professional service from them. And what's happened is that you see the disproportionate service going to certain sectors of the population, specifically working class and black and Asian communities. And this, I want to, let me just quote uh, a paragraph from one of the commissioners in the Metropolitan Police, who after 10 years of the Lawrence case, said this. His name was uh, Ian Blair, and at the time the police had said, after 10 years they learned all the experiences and we were no longer institutional racist. He says, anybody who read the McPherson report would recognize an institution that was treating people in the very monochrome way. I don't necessarily believe there was nothing racist about the activities of the Metropolitan Police in relation to the Lawrence's. What the investigators did was they treated the Lawrence's as they treated a whole range of working class people. And they just did not understand the expectations and the experiences of the black community. That is what has changed. Well, how many McPhersons will it take to have Lawrence's? How many years do I have to live in this country for the police to understand my experience? And when somebody dies in a working class family, why shouldn't they demand just like the black community class. Thank you. Thank you very much, Suresh. I'd like to invite Irene to continue the case of science opposition. I've been a police officer for 29 years. Uh, I'm still a police officer. And I'm very proud and passionate about being a police officer. Despite everything you've heard today, there is nothing that stops my passion and pride for wearing a police uniform. And that's why I'm here to speak today. Because I think it's really important that people understand the complexity of the role of a police officer. The difficult and challenging decisions that police officers often have to make in really dynamic and high-risk situations, often life-or-death situations. But let me acknowledge that on occasions, we do let ourselves down. We do have police officers who let the service down, let the public down, and let themselves down. And I do feel that the, the service, as I mentioned earlier, receives a disproportionate amount of negative media coverage, with an overemphasis on the bad rather than the good in policing. I'd like to think there are some people in the room who have a good experience of policing. Every year I am a judge on the Police Bravery Awards that hardly gets any coverage on the news. These are police officers who are putting their lives on the line to protect people like themselves as they go about their job. But let me make one thing clear. I am not here to defend bad police officers or bad policing. I can't agree more with some of the comments that have already been made about where the police service has, has actually acted in a really poor way and let let people down, let the public down. I used to be head of professional standards in Lancashire and I've got a track record for investigating and removing bad officers from the service. And I've got a lot of colleagues all over the country who are doing that day by day. The actions of one bad officer can have a lasting effect on somebody's confidence and trust in the police. But I don't know any decent police officer out there who would support a bad one because they know that their actions impact on all of us. I totally acknowledge the comments that have been made about the police service being defensive. There is a blame culture in the police service, exacerbated by the media, that if something goes wrong, they need to find somebody. Somebody that can hang, draw, quarter publicly because something's gone wrong in policing. That impacts on the ability of officers to actually hold their hand up at times, even for the most minor indiscretion, and actually admit that they've done something wrong. It's something that we need to change. We need to learn to move on and learn the lessons and acknowledge where we've done things wrong. We are getting better at that, but we can be better still. Now, policing by consent in this country is pretty much uh, unique to UK policing. 
It's a model we should be really proud of and we should preserve. The fact that our armed officers do not patrol our streets as a matter of course is something that we should all be pleased about. But we can only please my consent through the legitimacy that you, our communities, give us. And that legitimacy arises through the trust and confidence that the public have in us. Every time a member of the public has a bad experience of policing, or even worse, hears from someone else about their bad experience, it eats away at the faith that people have in the police. And I know it can take a long time to recover that, if at all. But I want to just give you a few facts about policing. Policing is a complex job where officers are required to make difficult, high-risk decisions in dynamic, challenging environments. In any such working environment, things will go wrong from time to time. There are approximately 120,000 police officers across England and Wales. Police officers are recruited from the general public. Police officers are human beings. No human beings are perfect. We all make mistakes. No one I know comes to work with the intention of making mistakes. And whilst the police service has stringent vetting procedures, they're not totally infallible. And on occasions, we do recruit people who shouldn't be in the police. Our job is to seek them out and remove them as quickly as possible. So why is it that things go wrong? Well, Michael already referred to the systemic issues, the cultural issues that do cause uh, problems and can be behind some of the issues that have gone on in the past. It could be simple human error. It may be just because somebody's working and spinning too many plates at once. They get insufficient rest, they're too tired, they make the wrong decision. It could be incompetence. Some officers aren't properly trained to do what's expected of them. Some are just lazy. And some are simply just not good enough at their job. It could be stupidity. We've had our fair share of stupid police officers, and there are still some out there. They're not immune from doing stupid things from time to time. And on very rare occasions, it could just be an officer who's plain bad, corrupt or dishonest. But can I just remind you of the figure 120,000? That's how many police officers are out there protecting the public, keeping people safe. 120,000. Now I know people talk about bad apples, bad barrels, but bad police officers are in a significant minority. So we need to keep in proportion what we hear about policing. I know that the people in the audience who will have had a bad experience in policing, and I know that it'll take time to recover that confidence that you may have had not. All I will ask you is that please don't assume that every police officer is the same. If a student does something wrong, something stupid, something bad, that doesn't mean that everybody in this room will do the same as them. We're all individuals. We all have biases. We all deal with things in different ways because of our upbringing, our perceptions. And it's important to recognise that we are all different. The vast majority of police officers are totally committed to helping the public. They see that as their vocation in life. That's why they join the police because they want to help the public. They and, I, they and I are as passionate about police integrity as you are. We must all continue to do everything we can to ensure that the public continue to have faith in the police. Every police officer is an ambassador for the police service and I encourage every one of them to do what they to restore that trust and confidence. I'm immensely proud of the British Police Service and I'm immensely proud to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Troy, and thank you very much to all of our speakers for this uh, fun day so far. So I'd like to invite um, any questions for either side of the table, so you can direct your questions towards the side of the opposition, you can direct your questions towards the side of the opposition, or you can just ask a question there. Um, so, any questions for either side of the table? Um, yes, you're there. I have a question for the side opposition. So, first off, 
do you know whether or not the police, at least in Greater Manchester, um, have the same makeup of various ethnic minorities as the population of Greater Manchester? If not, are you currently doing anything to try to make that better? Oh, yeah, yeah I mean, thank you. It's, it's actually an excellent question. Um, and the answer to it is no, policing is a long, long way from looking like the community that the policing serves, and we've got to change that. The biggest handicap at the moment, though, is um, I'm a politician, I even can't say this, she's a police officer. We have a very stupid government who are cutting back the, uh, the funding for our public services. And it means actually we're losing, uh, roughly speaking, something over 300 police officers every year, and we're not replacing. And if we don't replace, then it means we're not getting the ethnic diversity and the, the, the diversity more generally than we ought to do. So the bad news is the bad government is making it very difficult to change the competition. The good news is that where we are still able to recruit amongst the police and community support officers, um, in the early part of this year we've now got the BME intake up to between 30 and 40 percent, it depends on which quarter that took place in. So then the most likely recruits into mainstream policing will come from the PCSOs. So we're doing everything we can do to change it, but we're doing it with one arm tied behind our backs and one arm in Theresa May's, uh, underneath Theresa May's foot. If we can get this government's uh, foot off uh, us, then we can uh, fast track that, and we should do, because it's in everybody's interest. Harry. Yeah, I, I can't speak for Greater Manchester, obviously, but just in terms of the national picture, it, we're, not, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Um, there are some challenges around even forces that are recruiting being able to recruit enough people from ethnic minority backgrounds to actually change the proportion significantly. For me, I think we need to think differently about this. We need to think about how can we, if we don't have a workforce that reflects our communities, how can we actually make sure we can still engage with all the different communities that we police? Because just because we say we don't have a very high ethnic mix shouldn't stop us actually trying to engage and engage in the best way we can with the various communities, the young, the old, not just, not just ethnic communities. So I think we need to think a bit more creatively really about how we engage with all different communities uh, and get their views about policing wherever it is we work. Michael. In response to that question? Yeah. Um, so I do outreach work as part of an organisation called Stopwatch. And one of the things that kind of shocked me the most um, in 10 years of doing this work was this year we went out to a youth project in London and we were talking to young people about their relationship with the police. And a young black kid, who was 10, said he hates the police. It's in his blood. A 10-year-old child hates the police. It's in his blood. Of course the police don't represent the community in terms of its ethnic makeup. It's not to do with Theresa May. It's not to do with anything that's going on now. It's inherent. It's systemic. The police will never represent the communities that they come down hard on because they're not trusted and those communities don't have faith in them. Um, the whole issue of uh, uh, representation in terms of ethnicity of the police has been raised so many times and after, after the McPherson inquiry, all the police services across the country set targets on how much it should be. None of the police services ever um, reached these targets some said they were very ambitious, but there's no question that the police service, if it is genuinely accountable and representative, should include representation from all sorts of communities. Uh, that uh, only happens if communities have ownership of the process of policing. And just having a large number of people from ethnic minorities in the police force doesn't change the power relationship within it. Remember, in apartheid South Africa, the largest section of police officers were actually black, but they had no power. So representation has to be taken in the context that's been used. It should be there because it represents, but it cannot be there as a tokenist issue and as a paper uh, checking exercise. It has to be very real. Thank you. Any other questions for either side? Uh, yes, in the way back there, in the green jumper. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence to show that um, no matter what uh, powers are given to police, that they're exceeded. So what safeguards do you think need to be in place to ensure that police are given powers and then that they stick to those powers? Yeah, um, 
Well, I, I would question where the evidence is that virtually every power is exceeded, because th there are probably a few powers that, um, that are treated in different ways. So, so if we take stop and search as the, the, I suppose, the obvious one, um, one, of, one of the things that they've done in the Metropolitan Police in the last 12, 18 months is reduce significantly the number of stop and searches they're doing. A, a lot of the issues around that were poor training, a performance culture that uh, encouraged people to go out and do stop searches, and they were going out and picking easy targets. The other area for me around stop and search is unconscious bias. I talked very briefly about bias when I, when I gave my presentation. Bias is something that affects us all. We all have biases. Uh, and it's becoming more and more clear that operational decision-making, decisions made by officers out on the street are affected by their bias. And until they actually become aware of what their biases are, they can't do something to check those biases. So I wouldn't necessarily say that they're, they're abusing their powers in the, in the sort of intentional sense. Sometimes those powers are being abused because of the systemic issues, the, the cultural issues that they're working within. Where people do abuse the powers, and I think it's only in limited occasions, then we need to identify that and we need to deal with it. I, I would not try and defend anybody who abuses their powers. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, let me pick up on stop and search as, as well, because I, actually I think stop and search is probably the single biggest um, determinant of, uh, of the relationship between the, the community generally and then specific parts of the community, people from ethnic minorities, people from traditionally working class communities. And I represented a, a, the most diverse parts of Manchester and the working class parts of Manchester, and I come from it uh, for, for lots of years. So I, I do think stop and search and the, the capacity to abuse and the perception that this is abuse has always been a very real one. Um, I had a public um, hearing with the senior police officer in Greater Manchester um, about four or five months ago, and we'll have another one in, uh, in January, where we're challenging them to manage the use of stop and search, a little bit like in the way I was described, to, to, to look, for example, why is stop and search used in some areas far more than in others? Because it's about challenging managers to challenge it manages being inspectors and sergeants in policing, if you like, to, to manage the process to make sure that they are setting the tone and the standard. But actually, there's something else we're doing, which I think is really important. We're trying to bring in, um, uh, uh, well, not trying, we will bring in body worn video cameras, um, because in actual fact, the capacity to have both the, the person questioning, if you put the stopping, and the person being stopped um, with the same record of evidence actually doesn't half do an awful lot. It's not perfect. I already know we're talking before, you know, bizarrely, some police officers do behave badly even when they know it's on camera. Some members of the public behave very badly even though, the, the, uh, even though it's on camera. But it does mean that we can then begin to, to look at where, um, where abuse takes place and, and, and begin to deal with that in a, in a much more systemic way. So I think actually that um, technology won't solve everything. Let, let, let me make that point. In the end, it's, 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 it's making sure we've got the culture right, that police officers recognise that if you give them extraordinary power, they use that power with extraordinary care. Um, a police officer isn't in the same position as the public. It isn't a, um, it isn't a, a simply neutral relationship. Uh, it is one of extraordinary power. And I would resent deeply being stopped as I have been in my life. Um, and I resent it even more if that's not polite and reasonable. It's actually a polite and proper exchange and the proper use of stop and search is in the public interest. We've got to get that right to give confidence to you, the public, uh, that, that, that that use is proportionate and fair. Thank you. Suresh? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm slightly hard of hearing. I've just come out of flu. So I think the question was, the police have sufficient power what exists to hold them to account. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I think you have to, I mean, I'm a consultant with the Independent Police Complaints Commission on very specific cases where the families believe that the investigation into deaths haven't been thorough. So the police have brought, uh, the IPCC have brought us to look at the case and review it. And I'm involved in about three cases at the moment where the family are not satisfied, we're looking at police actions. In order to answer that question, uh, I think we have to look at it in two ways. One is policy level and the other is operational level. On a policy level, obviously in terms of accountability, there is certain legislation that exists. It should hold the police to account. There's a Human Rights Act, 
which should, for example, protect um, the right of life, a death in custody, for example, and remedial issues for the family. Um, but um, there are questions about it. There are policies issues to do with if something goes wrong. There are professional standards who look at it, and obviously the ITCs come in if independence has to be agreed. But there's a huge concern whether the police should be investigating complaints by themselves and at what level the IPCC comes. Um, on an operation level, on the streets where they use their power or at homes where they use their power, unless something drastically goes wrong, nobody can actually force as the operations are going ahead or before it. So in terms of operations, people are powerless to dictate how the police should proceed. They can only have remedial actions. So um, it's a major source of concern because all notions of accountability have actually come from public persuasion or from campaigns led by families or by governments putting their foot down. Theresa May's speech at the Police Federation this year castigated bullying within the police themselves and the nature of the power that ordinary police officers have been using on the street. And she used, for example, not just the Lawrence case, but the Plattgate case, where the police officer doctored the evidence against the chief whip of the Conservative Party and then inquiry subsequently. I think that the starting point of the question is a good one. And the starting point of the question is that we should assume that power will be abused. That should be our starting point. But I'm also going to agree with Tony. Tony said it's important that we're not cynical. And I completely agree with that because actually we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we've made hugely significant gains in regulating police conduct. There have been massive improvements in the way police go about conducting themselves, particularly in the police station. As a result of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which brings very strict criteria governing how the police should interview people, governing how the police should collect evidence, very strict regulations, marked improvements in police conduct. Where it's difficult is outside of the police station. Where it's difficult is regulating police conduct away from the police station, away from supervising officers. This is why stop and search is so difficult. If we look at stop and search, as people have, the most egregious examples of the abuse of stop and search in the last 10 years have been of exceptional powers which don't require reasonable suspicion. So Section 44 of the Terrorism Act, Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. These are stop and search powers which effectively are not regulated. These were supposed to be exceptional powers, except Section 44 of the Terrorism Act was in place in London for 10 years, permanently. 140,000 plus people were getting stopped and searched per year under Section 44 of the Terrorism Act. Guess how many people got convicted for terrorism-related offences as a result of those stops and searches? More than half a million stops and searches over 10 years. None. Not one. What this shows, yet again, is where you don't have regulation, you have abuse of power. Section 44 was declared incompatible with the right to privacy by the European Court and was effectively dismantled. Section 60 has been challenged in court and the police have effectively abandoned its use. So the point is, Regulation, effective regulation, can be a guard against the inevitable abuse of power. So we shouldn't be cynical, but we should be sceptical. Thank you. Any more questions specifically for side proposition? If anyone has one side proposition? Yes, in the way. Me? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I could be open to any of the sides, but to proposition. Um, we read a lot in newspapers, and particularly with regards to sexual assaults, that Police either turn a blind eye or they actually don't care about these issues because it's very hard to prosecute. And so what happens is that it leads to a lot of these um, sexual assaults and rapes not being reported to the police. So do you think that a lack of sympathy and a lack of effort from certain police officers contributes to perception, and whether that is true or not, that the police either don't do anything about sexual attacks on the streets and thus leads to a lack of faith in the police? Well, uh, it's, it's a very complicated issue, isn't, isn't it? And again, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, have an image of the police that they're willfully abusive of power. 
Um, I think we need, we need to think very carefully about what it must be like to be a police officer who regularly has to engage in these kinds of crimes, that, that on some level they need to cope with what's happening. So what may appear to be insensitivity to an issue may actually be a coping strategy which is necessary to deal with the trauma that can result of being confronted with what are often very terrible crimes. Um, so I don't think that we should come from a position of saying that they necessarily lack sympathy. Um, I think we should understand often the frustrations that police encounter in the failure of cases, so where they bring cases of domestic violence and, and the complaints withdrawn. But again, I think that the, the, the basic point um, is, is a good one. And what we've seen just in the last couple of weeks is the parliamentary inquiry um, has, has raised real concerns about the manipulation of official crime records, so the way in which police uh, know crime report. So it was, it was said that over 800,000 crimes reported to the police were not recorded as crime. That's a, that's a fifth of all crimes reported to the police are not recorded as crime, and that's a quarter of sexual crimes. So I guess the point is, if we can't trust the police to record crime accurately, what can we trust them to do? <coughs> I mean, I, I think that the police, I deal with a lot of sexual violence cases and racial violence and what would be considered to be very serious offences, and I'm sure a large proportion of police officers also deal with them. But I think a person in that situation going to the police station has the right to expect sympathetic and sensitive policing, regardless of the number of cases coming to the police unit. I think it requires, in terms of collation of evidence and supporting the victim and building the strength to give evidence later on, it requires that process of support, sympathy, sympathy and empathy. And that to me is part and parcel uh, of policing in serious cases where you want victims who feel uh, violated, who feel that uh, they're isolated because of the crime or feel uh, different aspects of it, uh, actual infrastructural support from an institution like the police. Um, so I think one case of neglect like that is a case too many. Uh, and I think if a person in that situation thinks that the police are being insensitive, then it reflects a serious cause for public concern. Tony? Yeah, I, I, actually, I'm in agreement with what Sir Richard just said. Um, <coughs> the, 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 we, we know that there have been really dreadful cases in the past where, uh, you know, particularly actually, uh, um, young women in, um, in, in uh, some of our northern towns were, were ignored by the police at the time because they were regarded not as victims, as indeed they were, but, but as victims of their own, um, their own situation, and that can never be acceptable. What I would say to you, though, is this, is that where policing has been changed in, in recent times, in, in here in Greater Manchester, for example, not just over road here, the St Mary's Sexual Assault Referral Centre is probably one of the best facilities in the country where um, it's primarily uh, a facility that starts off by looking at the victim of sexual assault as um, somebody in need of the, maybe the physical help, maybe um, uh, 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 mental mental health issues, counselling, and so on. But also does work very closely with the police in terms of uh, the forensics and the, the policing structure in Greater Manchester is very very different to what it used to be because now it's a special specialist unit. Um, it's officers who picked because they are empathetic. It's officers who, as they develop experience, are, are, are investigating in a more thorough, more systematic way than may have, may have applied in the past. It's a very, very different way of doing it. Because it is right, um, actually, um, we've got to be focused around the victim. And one of the changes that I've hopefully part of bringing it back here in Greater Manchester is that when I took up my own role, one of the problems with the policing is it came to a period where the police were given some national targets and there were very um, hard-edged things like vehicle crime and such like. I don't actually think that was very helpful because it took away from what the police ought to be doing in terms of recognising vulnerability. And vulnerability is now actually the highest priority 
for Greater Manchester Police. Now, I can't think of, you can think of people who are equally vulnerable, but a man or a woman who's just been a victim of a sexual assault is <coughs> pretty high on that, uh, that list of vulnerability, so we've got to get it right. Um, and it isn't enough to fail any individual there. That's absolutely right. But I, I can never say nothing will ever go wrong, even though it is coming. But I can tell you this, it's a very different uh, reception. And actually, I want uh, victims of sexual assault women men to, re to report what's happened to them because that's the way that we deal with those who, the, the, the offenders. Uh, that's the way we get them uh, dealt with in the way we want. And people have got to report and we've got to have the confidence that they'll be treated. It's pretty traumatic being a victim in the first place. Um, it's even more traumatic if you're made to feel that whole experience of the, the, court, the police and court process is a double uh, victimisation. So we've got to get that as, as, as right as we possibly can. Alright. Um, back in the 1970s, before most of you I think in this room really thought on their mind at there was a there was a horrific documentary on TV about a rape investigation and it showed some police officers interrogating, and I mean interrogating a rape victim, not a rape offender, but a rape victim. Uh, and the police service learnt a lot from that. Um, and culturally we moved on massively. I talked earlier about um, lazy officers, uh, talked about stupid officers and on some occasions lazy and stupid officers do not deal with victims of sexual abuse, sexual assault uh, as they should. But the vast, vast majority of police officers out there fully understand the impact of sexual violence, the impact of domestic abuse and they do everything they can to support victims in those cases. I think there's, there's this huge issue about um, almost some things that are seen as acceptable in society at one time, but not at another time. If you think of um, drink driving, not wearing seatbelts, back when I was a youngster, these things were all acceptable. Drink driving, people just did it. Nobody really bothered with it was against the law. It took a long time to people to accept and for, for society to shift their attitudes towards drink driving. When I joined back in 1985, when I joined the police, I, my, one of my very first incidents was a domestic abuse case. Uh, and, and I was with a chief constable who told me, don't worry about it, we just make sure there's nothing happening at the time, and then we leave it to them, because what goes on behind closed doors is their business. That's how policing used to be. And we've gone full circle now. Um, and people say sometimes we're over-intrusive uh, in domestic abuse cases. I don't think we can be over-intrusive when you're protecting people who are, who are feeling vulnerable in their own home. So I think what, it's about keeping this in perspective again. There are officers who don't treat um, this as seriously as they should, but they are in an absolute minority. The majority of officers will treat victims um, with, with empathy, as, as Tony says, and, and will treat them and make sure they get the right protection through the criminal justice system. What we have to do is make sure that those officers that don't are highlighted and we can find out who they are and we can either train them or if they're not suitable and they don't want to change their attitude then you have to leave the police because we don't want people like that in the police. I do think the, the reporting of <coughs> offences to the police has increased massively and I think things like the Savile effect has had a huge impact on people actually recognising now and starting to build that confidence in the police that they can actually report sexual offences and they will be taken seriously. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we found ourselves quite short of time, so no more questions from the audience, but thank you very much for your questions. And I would like to invite Michael to provide a summary or side proposition. So, I'm, I'm glad that the opposition agree with us. Um, the opposition <laughs> have talked about lazy, stupid and bad police officers who are subject to human error. Why don't you have faith in them? Tony's talked about the police being brave, um, and we've also heard about the police being committed, and we'd, we'd agree with that, of course. Um, the way I think of it is the police represent the best and worst of humanity. Um, police officers conduct themselves with great commitment, with great skill and great ability in many, many situations, but they also represent the less savoury side of humanity the tendency towards the abuse of power, the tendency not to own up when they do things wrong, the tendency to cover their own backs, the tendency to cover the backs of the people that they like and care for. So we're not anti-police, we're not saying the police are terrible and never do good things. What we're saying is the police are in a unique position and are subject to human frailty. They represent the best and the worst. 
Tony said the failure of the 1980s aren't really relevant today, that we've moved on. My point is not that things haven't changed. The, the, the point is that the failures of the 1980s really show you what happens when you don't have robust systems of regulation. If you simply have faith, you are inviting the kinds of abuses that we saw in the 1980s because the exercise of power is not subject to control. The key point for me is really this. Faith is blind. And faith is not a sensible starting point for your relationship with power, with any kind of power, whether that's the military or whether that's the police. Because blindness is an invitation to the abuse of power. And rather than power, what we need is accountability. We need robust systems of accountability which subject police conduct to tight regulation. Uh, and when the police fail to live up to those standards, then what we need is we need that allow us to be reconciled to our police and allow us to build the trust and confidence in what the police do. is very, very dangerous in policing. We, we do have to have proper controls of our police. That's right, and proper, proper management, proper systems, uh, proper, it's established. I've set up an ethics committee headed by, as happened the Bishop of Manchester, to um, examine ethical questions that face modern policing. A proper, independent complaint system, because things will go wrong in given institutions. I make mistakes, you make mistakes, police officers make mistakes. We've got to have a way of working through those and examining them. That's very important. That's part of having faith in, um, in that we have a, a, a police service that, that we can place our trust in, because without that, that complacency is, 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 is toxic, just as I say, cynicism is toxic. But I do want to say this to you, that actually the British model of policing, the concept of policing, the, the, the situation of neighbourhood policing, of the police working uh, for the community with the community is the only way of policing actually that keeps our communities properly safe. The public having confidence in our policing is fundamental. Well, whatever backgrounds, whatever parts of the community people come on, come from, that's the, the big challenge. But I will say this to you, that in the end, um, in the end, when you have a situation as you had not very long ago, when a car was on fire, um, teetering over like some Hollywood movie on the high-level bridge going over the ship canal, Barton Bridge, as it's called, those of you know it, and two police officers climbing into that vehicle uh, at risk of their own life to save and, and drag out the driver. Um, that's a kind of police officer that you can have faith in and you can have trust in. Now, yes, there are people who make mistakes in policing. There are people who shouldn't be in policing, and it's the role of government to manage the first to get rid of the you, the public, have got to have faith that when you bring that 999 call, or actually just want routine policing, the police will be there to keep our community safe. Thank you very much, Tony. I'd like to invite Smash to finish off the vote for signed propositions. Just three, um, I think, significant points. The first is this notion that Britain has an experienced rights like the Americans are doing at the moment. Well, 2011, Mark Duggan was shot in Dublin, and we have one of the most profound public unrest, violent and fighting in this country. And I support the Duggan family. I'm one of the representatives in Dublin. And I think the second point is this. When we look at the debate on policing, there's always a tendency by people who think we are criticizing and show concerns to label us as anti-police. It's happened for the last 20, 30 years. But in a democratic society, a powerful institution which has huge amounts of resources, has very specific powers to detain people and use reasonable force, has to be held to account. 
And one of the ways of doing it is to criticize it. But I don't say that there aren't islands and pockets of excellence in the police force and there are no brave, brave police officers. That's not the issue. The issue is this. Does it really represent the will of the people that it says it serves? Would you want a police service that is prejudicial, not just in terms of racism, but also sexist? Would you want a police force that uses its powers and doesn't consider regulation properly? And that's the real debate. And if there has to be changes in police and reforms in the police, it has to take into account the general views of the public, but in an informed way. But those structural changes have to be root and branch changes and not just tokenistic. Thank you very much, Suresh. I'd like to invite Ivy to finish the debate as well. Uh, yes, I have talked about lazy and stupid officers today, but what I think I've shown you is actually there are also honest officers out there, people like me who speak honestly about policing. I'm an example of the vast majority of police officers out there. Remember, 120,000, the vast majority of whom you can trust and you can have confidence in. And I agree that complacency is a real risk We've, we've moved forward miles since the 1970s, the 1980s, but we have still got a way to go. We, have need, we do need to acknowledge that, that we're not perfect, we haven't got everything right. We need to learn lessons when things go badly wrong. But I welcome more accountability and more transparency. I think it's really important. It's really important to bring that trust and confidence about communities, that they can see what's happening in policing, they get a better understanding of what's happening in policing. The proposition before you tonight is that you have no faith in the police, and that's an absolute. We've already heard from Suresh just now, there are pockets of excellence in policing. There are brave officers in policing. Do you have trust and confidence in them? Because they're the majority. Faith is trust and confidence. Policing covers a whole wide range of roles. It's not just about stop and search. It's about protecting vulnerable people. It's about keeping society safe. I've been honest with you tonight. All I ask is that in relation to this proposition, be honest with yourself. Thank you.